0: Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. For the second edition of Imposters Toolkit, my guest is Daphne E. Jones. Daphne is a seasoned executive and Fortune 50 retiree and author of the book, Win When They Say You Won't, which comes out in November. Daphne has had a long career as an SVP, CIO, and she's held other leadership positions at companies like IBM, Johnson & Johnson, Hospora, which is now part of Pfizer, and General Electric. But before her career had a chance to take off, it was almost thrown off course entirely by a high school career coach who told her that black women didn't go to college and that her only career options were to become a teacher or a secretary. Since that experience, Daphne has made it a mission to ensure that other women of color and other groups that are overlooked aren't discouraged from following their career goals like she almost was. My full conversation with Daphne E. Jones right after this quick break. Daphne Jones, welcome to Imposters.
1: Thank you for having me today. I'm excited to be here. So
0: your career path is both an interesting and winding one. You came up in a time when education was limiting or problematic, let's say, to people of color and women. Tell us about your coming up and how that led to the troubling thing a career counselor ended up saying about your future.
1: Well, I was born and raised in a small town right south of Chicago. It's called Phoenix, Illinois. And when I tell people I'm from Phoenix, they're like, oh, Arizona. I'm like, no, the other one. Well, they, what other one is that? <laughs> and it's uh, a town of 1,500 people. And so we were so small and poor. There was no grocery stores. There was no post office. All we had was liquor stores and churches. So I guess after people got drunk, they went to church and asked for forgiveness. So that's kind of how small it was. And my parents were from Jamaica, so they were immigrant parents, and my mom cleaned bedpans at night for the hospital. And then my dad was on the factory floor. So he was on the assembly line. So they were very, I wouldn't say uneducated because they did go to school, but they were undereducated. They probably didn't make it past high school. But what they did recognize is number one, that Jamaica was under the British rule. And so being under the British rule, it was just about the excellence that Britain kind of endeared to them. They stressed learning, they stressed being really smart. they, they, They stressed reading a ton. So even though we were living in poor circumstances my mom's mindset wasn't poor or was not based on poverty. And so I did well in school, you know, there were times when I got assaulted, you know, racial assault, physical assault by people who didn't look like me and and boys and and others, but I still, you know, went through school, still did really well. And so as mom was talking about being great and and having excellence and reading all the time and, and just doing well, I said I went to my counselor and I said, "Well, I'd like to start getting ready for college. And I was surprised where he never like came after me and asked me, Daphne, it's time to start thinking about college. And then I realized why, because he said to me, Daphne, girls, like you don't go to college. You know, black girls is what he meant. And he said, if you try to get in, you won't get in. If you get in, you won't get out, meaning you won't graduate. And then if you do graduate, no one's really going to hire you because they don't see you as being that type of person. And and I kind of realized that later on what he meant was that a lot of times when you see a Black individual, you don't look at them as being a peer or someone that you would give an $80 million budget to because the people that are accustomed to looking at you, they think of you as a maid or they think of you as somebody who cleans a house or someone who's a cook. And so that is clearly how he thought of me. And so I, I listened to him. He defined my narrative. He defined my future. And I let him. I'm glad I know better. He's authority. and You don't defy authority, right? And so I became a secretary at Women's Day magazine. He said, that's my choice. Secretary or maybe, you know, being a teacher. And so being a secretary at the Women's Day magazine, which was hilarious because at Women's Day magazine, the people who ran the magazine were all men. But um, I, I did that secretarial role for a little while and I realized I was terrible at it. I was horrible. And I said, you know what, this, I was listening to them in their offices and I could hear what they were doing and it wasn't rocket science. So I said, you know what, I'm sure I can do what they're doing. So I'm not going to really be a secretary. I think I should have a secretary. And it was that moment that I kind of took my own narrative and took my own purpose and said, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. I don't have any role models, but I know that I don't want to do what I'm doing. And so I decided to go to college and I didn't go you know, with my high school graduating class because I started late. But when I did go to college, I graduated in three years of my bachelor's degree instead of four years. And then I got my MBA in one year instead of two. And, and at that point, I realized, wait a minute, the audio that he gave me didn't match the video that was playing through of my life. And so... Well, I wonder what other people are going to be wrong, you know, about my ability to, to be able to win and, and define my own narrative. And, and so after I went to college, the colleges said, let's, let's place you in a company. And uh, IBM was my company. That was my dream job. And I ended up joining IBM in the late 1970s. And from there, my career didn't always go straight up. Because there were other people who may not have been my counselor, but they may have thought like my counselor, so as I encountered people along the way, I would sometimes you know go up, go sideways, have to take a glass cliff where you know you've got a really dangerous opportunity in front of you. If you do well, woohoo, but if you don't do well, you could get to a dull thud and 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 kill your career and so that's sort of how my career has gone up and down
0: first of all, the career counselors advice was very shitty advice. And I say that in such a declarative way because I think, one, it was just shitty advice. Two, I think as you explained, it's amazing how powerful and dangerous when you're young, the advice of others who are older than you and quote-unquote more knowledgeable or wiser, how much we latch on to others' advice and it becomes our own reality, like how much our narratives turn into our reality. And so I think it's just... You know, for those listening who are thinking about the advice that they give to others, those who are mentors to other people, understanding the power of your word and how your word can truly dictate the actions and directions of others is super important to appreciate.
1: Yeah, I think what happened for a lot of girls, it's, it's a conditioning. We've been conditioned to not believe we have value. We've been forced to drop our mic or lower our voice or, or hide our culture. Uh, we've been overlooked, underpaid, undervalued. And as a little girl, you get that little harmless, seemingly harmless comment of, you sure you wanna do science? You know, are you sure you wanna play basketball? And those little tiny voices in our minds teach us how to appreciate, how to ask permission to prosper. And they then grow up into little seeds of ideas, grow up into big trees of what we now know as imposter syndrome, because we've been told so long to go this way. But then when we go this way, then we must not be real or authentic or right for this opportunity. So the power of the voice is, you know, my husband's six foot four and and I can make him five foot three in a minute just by how I talk to him right? And and so we have power to set the trajectory for our children, for our employees, for our companies, and for ourselves.
0: We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll hear how Daphne continued to navigate other racist, sexist, and limiting attitudes throughout her professional life and the strategy that she uses to move up in her career. Stay with us. Obviously, your experience with your career counselor was one moment where there were limiting attitudes of others, but you also mentioned how once you started at IBM and kind of worked your way, winding through your career to ultimately end up uh, as a CIO, how there were other people who were limiting in their beliefs, created self-doubt for you. Can you talk for a second about other instances of limiting attitudes of others and how you were able to still navigate to success in the face of these other folks that were acting as hindrances along the way and not empowering you to be the best version of yourself?
1: So being in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, it was unusual because, you know, I go into the room, a room, a conference, let's say, and there were either none, people that looked like me in terms of a female or for sure black. And so sometimes they say, if you want to be it, you have to see it. Well, I didn't see it. So I had to be it. I didn't have any cookie crumbs that people were leaving for me to say, this is how you win in the STEM world, which is which is only men. So I had to then endure not only being in technology, but then when I was at Johnson and Johnson, I'll never forget, I was being touted as a high potential and a high potential is when you have a, a leader who probably has a pretty long and tall runway to be able to go from level to level to level. So they moved me around from corporate headquarters to, in this case, the consumer business. And I didn't become a CIO in the consumer business. I had to take another move, but it was on my way to being a CIO. Well, there was somebody who didn't believe in me. Uh, I didn't know a lot about manufacturing and supply chain. But it's like, you know, where do you go to get experience about supply chain and manufacturing if it's not in a supply chain and manufacturing company? And that's what the consumer business was. You know, we had plants all over the world and they wanted me to be the technology person for this manufacturing capability. And so I found that I didn't get assistance when I asked for it because the the head of supply chain and manufacturing did not support me being there he said that you know he wanted somebody who had experience but there are other people around me that didn't have experience but they were given support they were given mentoring they were given education and they were given budgets to help them to be able to win so i found you know even one time i went to introduce myself at a plant and i would go into the room where the plant manager who introduced me to his people that sat around the table and i would go to each one of them and i would shake their hand i would stand up and walk to each person and shake their hand as they introduced me as the new i.t leader for the consumer business and this plant and there were two people who didn't stand up and didn't shake my hand and they just kind of did this like when i like hiya And then the the tension spread through the room. But thank goodness, the last person who I was going to was the head of HR for the plant. And so she stood up and and shook my hand as well and kind of got it back in even kilter. And so to answer your question about how do you get over that, it's back to the, the answer of your mindset. And part of the way I, reason why I wrote my book is that we sometimes get angry. We get mad. We cry. We quit. We, we do all kinds of things when we get bad news. And if you think like a company does, a company loses market share. A company doesn't make its revenue target due to COVID or other reasons. A company has a stock price that gets devalued. Companies have people that quit. The companies don't get mad. What they do is they take that information And that feedback as data, as information that they use and say, okay, we lost that employee. We're not going to go banging on the competition's door and demand that employee come back to us. We're going to say, I wonder why they left and find out the reasons why. So you can put better plans in place to keep that person or keep a person from quitting the next time. So it's really a mindset shift. And I think whoever has your mind has you. They say that winning is received at the end, when you get that promotion, when you take your company public or you lose 50 pounds, but it's really conceived in the beginning, in the mind. And so you can't get mad as as that quote says, you know, stay calm and carry on. That's really what allowed me to win when there are people that were coming after me, didn't want me to win.
0: I want to drill into that a little bit more because you have this awesome methodology that you talk about in your book, Win When They Say You Won't, which is the edit method. Can you talk about why you say that this is a great thing for marginalized people and women to achieve a winning mindset? What is the methodology? How do you break it down? And how can people actually put it to work in their careers?
1: Well, I used to be a programmer, right? So remember, I was, I'm was i a STEM girl. So I used to code RPG and COBOL and Assembler. And so There's a way that apps that we use, whether it be a restaurant reservation app, the GPS app, you name it, any app, you know, all apps are created usually with a cycle, a cycle of what they call plan, build, run, maintain. And so that's called the SDLC, software or systems development life cycle. It's just a process. And so when I realized that Apps like our iOS phone right now is on version 15.6 or something. If we think of ourselves as a product that can improve over time, then how do we improve apps? We improve apps through this life cycle. So edit, first of all, means change. Edit the word. And if you change how you think, you change your behaviors, then you will definitely change your outcomes. And so edit means change, change your outcomes. But the words also mean envision design, iterate, and transform. And so just as the apps, you plan your app, and then you design how the app is gonna work and you build it, and then you run that app, and then you maintain that or improve that app over time, the same with our lives. We could envision where we want to be, in terms of you know, who we want to be, what we want to be. We design our approach of how do we get there and we use business tools to do it. So we take business mindset, business tools to help improve a personal situation or a professional situation. And then after you design, then you go into iterate, which means you test your design in the market. Your market is your family, it's your boss, it's whoever you're trying to improve your reputation with. And then you iterate it. If you don't like the results you got, to go back and you fix the design again, you fix the plan again. And then when you have been successful, then you are transformed. You've gone from a junior analyst to a senior analyst. You've gone from a vice president to a senior vice president. You've gone from being overweight to being healthy. And so then after you do that, you always look for that next opportunity to increase to a better version of yourself, right? And then you're not just a one-time winner where you win one time. You are not just a success. You are successful. And I think people of color that have been marginalized don't have a structure. They don't have a framework for how do you win? How do you think differently? In my book, in the first three chapters, teaches how do you think, what is a growth mindset? Many of us have a fixed mindset or have a mindset where we're asking for permission or we're just grateful that we got a job and as opposed to realizing that we have superpowers and we were all created differently and beautifully. I look at my book as an antidote, a self-administered antidote to the poisons that are killing people's passions, killing people's purpose and killing people's professions.
0: I want to talk broadly about your personal mental health toolkit. What are things that you use to work through any issues that you may be facing in your personal or your professional life, whether that's with imposter syndrome or other things that you've dealt with over the arc of your career?
1: I discovered years ago that I am very heady. I am so much into my head and that they call that hothead. And I've learned that I need to do what's called water up, fire down so that my belly becomes the source of fire and not my head. I want to have a cool head. I want to be cool, calm, and collected. Because when you have so much in your head, it causes stress and you can get sick and have all kinds of issues. So my meditation, my focus on I do body tapping and making sure that I'm caught up in the feeling of what is going on in terms of touching and, and, you know, trying to feel my kidneys and things like that. And when I do that, my blood pressure goes down and I am much more calm. So part of it is just getting yourself just to be in a calm place, number one. Number two, one of the things that I do, and I actually brought this here, just in case you were to ask me about one of my favorite things I do, is I'm a boxer, I'm an amateur boxer. This particular one, I don't box with these gloves. This was a gift that one of my companies, I think this might've been the one in Illinois when I was leaving, they gave me a set of Everlast gloves. And I, I box, I mean, um, I go in the ring, And I spar, I have a 90 pound bag here in the house that I will, you know, do just. you know hit on my own and I have a speed bag as well that that I do so the exercise I jump rope and all those things that require you to have speed stamina and strength when you are going to be boxing and I've been doing that for many years and I remember that I would I would like come home from being like the only girl in the room full of men and they would say something they would like repeat something that I had said and, and they got credit for it, but I didn't and all those things that kind of make you crazy as as a woman and I would just, I would hit and I would have somebody's face. <laughs> it, I mean, not that I'm going to try to, you know, uh, go black on them and, and hurt anybody. But, you know, you just have this, this thing that says, <sighs> so I, I think that's the second thing. And the third thing I do is I read. I love reading, you know, I, I, whether like we're going on vacation starting tomorrow, my husband and I, and I've already got my iPad, Kindle, you know, packed up with books. And it allows me to either learn or it allows me to escape and pretend you know, I'm, I'm one of the characters in, in the book. But in imposter syndrome though, I'd say the fourth thing really is, it's part of the mindset again. You've done things for the first time before. This is just another new thing. You've ridden bikes before. You didn't always know how to ride a bike. You weren't an imposter when you learned how to ride a bike. So you've done things for the first time before. This is just one more thing. If we've always done the same things that we've always done We would never be promoted. We'd never be a better version of ourselves.
0: Daphne Jones, love all of the insights, love the frameworks for how you have the right mindset to navigate the ups and downs of both life as well as your professional career. So super appreciative uh, that you joined us on Imposters today.
1: I appreciate being here and part of it.
0: I have deep admiration for Daphne's strong and unwavering mindset. To have come up against the type of adversity that she has and to have been dismissed as much as she has been throughout her career and still ultimately come out on top, it's incredibly inspiring. It also speaks to how critically important it is to believe in yourself. I know that may sound cheesy, But believing in yourself is so incredibly important. If Daphne hadn't believed in herself when her counselor told her that people wouldn't hire her because of her race or her gender, or when those colleagues wouldn't stand up to shake her hand, she wouldn't be where she is today. And who she is today is someone who has been a top-level executive and held leadership positions at some of the biggest Fortune 500 companies in the world. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Vallabhaneni and Makila Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Greg Jacobs is our video producer and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler.